Hey there, welcome to the Deaver Podcast. If you've been listening to us for a while, you know that this podcast is all about how we can live lives with a little bit more courage so that we're able to love the hell out of this world. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts, and I am like <laughs> beyond, uh, just beyond excited and proud of what you're going to be hearing today. You know, we are in the second week of our Gender Fluent series, which is all about how we can approach the questions of gender with an attentiveness to its strange and sacred nature. Today on the podcast, you're going to hear from Catherine Bond Stockton. Catherine currently works as a distinguished professor of English at the University of Utah. She's described herself as a missionary to the missionaries, and she teaches primarily about queer theory, about gender theory, about racialized gender, and about 21st and 20th century literature and film. Catherine is someone that I first encountered her work in seminary in a queer liturgy class, which is a class all about how we bring in queer perspectives into worship. And, you know, when I first encountered it, it gave me a language, you know, for looking at the world that I'd never been exposed to. Um, you know, I went to a Catholic school for undergrad, which was brilliant on so many levels. And I got exposed to feminist theology and the perspectives of liberation theology, which is all centered around the poor and the marginalized. But I never had an experience in which we talked about a queer perspective, which comes from the world of critical theory, which is trying to upend the common sense, the things that we think, of course, are true, um, and really look at them upside down and from a, uh, a lens of the strange, the divergent, the subversive, and the kind of sexually marginal. And reading Catherine's book, The Queer Child, gave me a language for my own understanding of who I was as a queer child. Um, this ghostly gay figure that suddenly emerged after I came out. And I can look back and say I was a gay child, um, but was I in those moments? That's part of the question. And so I reached out to Catherine because I knew that she grew up Unitarian after reading her memoir. And I just thought, hey, it'd be amazing to have her. And, you know, it was a really remarkable experience um, to, to experience this sermon that is one of the queerest sermons I've heard preached in a Unitarian Universalist setting, which uh, fills my, my heart with such a sense of possibility for who we are as a movement to receive um, someone's experience that is so outside of the perspective of many of our community, and yet speaks directly to all of our experiences in a universal sense. And just the, the way that she works language is just, I find it so evocative and so beautiful. And so you're going to be hearing um, from her, her sermon title is, in, is Kissing Like a Unitarian, which really weaves the questions of how Unitarian Universalism looks at questions of the divine, the transcendent, how that sense of God in between us plays out in gender. One of the things she says is there should always be space between our words and ourselves. So there always is space. And because we aren't our words, there's um, always the, the way in which our words cannot fully encapture who we are. And yet they are what help us traverse the gaps between us. So I'm going to turn it over to, to Catherine to share her, um, her words. After that, you're going to hear a a little conversation that I recorded with a friend and colleague, Evan Carvel Zemer, who jumped on to talk through one of our question box questions. So I'm going to turn it over to Catherine. I hope you don't mind if I talk about something I was totally unprepared for. 
this morning. I came into the congregation. I'm used to being in classrooms, and classrooms are friendly spaces. But I was unprepared for the intensity of warmth that I felt to be in your midst. And that sort of took my breath away, and you're doing it again. So I may be a little unprepared in that sense, but thank you so much for the depth of your welcome. Let's have some fun together. Playful invocation via queer poet Gertrude Stein. They stayed there and were gay there. Not very gay there, just gay there. Each was gay there and she was regular. Regular in being gay, regular in not being gay. Regular in being a gay one who was one not being gay longer than was needed to be one being quite a gay one. They were both gay then there. More serious invocation. My heart's in my hand, and my hand is pierced, and my hand's in the bag, and the bag is shut, and my heart is caught. So writes novelist Jean Genet, and my heart was caught. I was pierced. I was compelled. I was searching. I've returned to the Unitarian values of my youth, to what I have long called God between their lips. Listen to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Along with many Unitarians, I'm not sure that God is a being, that God is a person in a grander sense than we are. I'm going to take the Bible at its word on this one. God is a word. And words are mystical in their force for good and ill. God, in particular, I now believe, is the word for the most sacred space in our lives, the space between us and between all things. Now, silently, if you would, look to your right, look to your left, and I want you to simply mark the space that sits between you and the person next to you. I want you to feel that material space. Then blow a kiss to it. Think of it as God. What do I mean? God is the material space between our bodies, the space that allows us to approach each other, but not fully possess each other. God is the space of our desire our longing to reach one another, our urge to make contact and intermingle. But to desire is not to have, not fully to attain, to be aching with only just approaching, just arriving, where your loved one is always out of reach, making you extend. Can you bear desire? Can you caress, being just out of reach of each other's grasp? Can you commit to this aching excitement? Celebrate your loved ones when they won't complete you, when they most annoy you. It means they are not you, and that's a good thing. They are other beings you can have whatever with. Perhaps that's why we kiss. So profound is the contact just at the surface at the lip of surface, making tender grazing at the hint of skin. 
Only words can be this subtle and also out of reach. How do I ever speak my love? We have intentions, but they cannot be seen, not even by ourselves. They are held we send from our bodies to each other. Words roll off the tongue. You feel them sensuously as I speak them. They enter your body as rhythm and vibration. The speaking of my love is my sensuous sending of my intent to another through the sensuous strangeness of words. And thus my intentions are always through the word only on the verge of arriving around you. God, as I say, is the space of highly excited approach. God is the word for the mysteries of our words that we send across this space. And the word that is with God is playful, open, connected, and so inviting of change. There should be space between our words and ourselves. But words can have another effect altogether. A system mightily sits on you in the form of a little ant-like word from the time of your birth, boy or girl. A cultural system in the form of a word with its massive connotations, despite its tiny size, is already driving our view of a body that we ourselves have simplified. A life-defining word says who this baby is, all without the baby's consent. I say this gently. Now, the word is not literally etched upon the baby, but we put the word inside the baby, the infant, the child, every day, in every way, as implanted word. The child will be asked, let's be real, it will be forced to kiss this word as its intimate self with no space at all between self and word. I am a girl. How does race enter in? U.S. racial histories are the most stunning proof against there being opposite sexes and thus two genders, boy and girl, man and woman in this country. Just think about it. Since the 13 colonies, we have made legal and often biological distinctions, however bogus, between at least six categories, white man, white woman, black man, black woman, native man, native woman, joined by other sexes and other territories. There can be no opposites with six or more sexes. Due to the U.S. system of race, no one exists as a man or woman, boy or girl. The opposite sex is a phantom concept. Nobody lives it. Indeed, I couldn't. I chafed against the kissing of a word I didn't choose. But children's gender and sexuality don't stop there. We could take a saucier look at the kissing of bodies, words, and images. And if I could, I would tell you my impossible story of the Hollywood kiss at age six. I tell it in my memoir, Making Out. There I convey my longing for a Hollywood kiss from my mother. What would it solve? If I get that kiss, I must be a boy. It will fulfill two cravings I have at the age of six. Kiss girl lips, kiss the boy word 
in relation to myself. I was where gay and trans collide. Looking back, I was a non-transition trans child, though I was never delaying and straying from the sign assigned to me. I was transiting like a bouncing ball across the girl-boy divide each day, kissing that boy term every chance I got. Indeed, at six, as if my body punned, balls endowed me with an almost genital sexual pulse and gender surety I didn't have. Dodgeballs, basketballs, tennis balls, footballs. What type of fetish was this? How did Freud miss it? I didn't want a penis so much as a ball. But I had to settle for a split temporality. Girl by day, boy by night. Girl at school, boy at play. With the migration of the sun went my gender, as if falling light were a scalpel I went under to change my sex every blessed night. Darkness was a benefactor, making me feel I innately loved twilight. By morning, my imposter was rising again. But wasn't she me? I confused myself. I am a boy. This girl, too? Was I two people seeking one kiss? Kissing was coherent. I was the problem, literally split by the dictates of the clock. Rescue, then, was welcome via evangelicals. You may find this stranger than anything I'll say. For in order to return to the Unitarian values of acceptance, the broadening of meanings, and the mystery of the word, I had to journey away from Unitarians into a realm unforeseen by me and my beloved parents. As a young teen, I asked myself, do I kiss for God? Do I obey the dictates I am daily reading in God's book? I hadn't foreseen that this reading would drastically channel my kissing, throwing God to a place between my lips. But I'm on a chairlift, about to kiss a boy, since God requires this kiss. Something, however, has turned before this point. A watershed moment has already arrived. Perhaps you can imagine how sexy I wasn't. I'm 13 and, oh, quite the looker. Page boy haircut, ill-fitting shirt, sad sack skirt, and ridiculous knee socks. I'm sitting on a swing set of all the weird places, talking to the world's most beautiful girl, why in the world is she talking to me? Jesus is our topic. She wants me to want him. I want her, so I want him. I really want to want him. And so I did. Jesus became a stunning pocket of the possible. No, I didn't know Jesus. I didn't grow up with him. My loving parents were cerebral Unitarians. The point is this, accepting Jesus in my heart, as the saying goes, advanced me, propelled me, catapulted me toward my own queerness. Evangelicals nurtured a queer side they didn't know I had. It was elementary. They hailed me as a girl. I became a leader and lover of girls. Until that time, since all my friends were boys, I just didn't know how surpassing girls could be. I wanted to preach this tasty gospel. Girls 
can be matchless. In the school cafeteria, we held hands and prayed together softly. We walked on the beach and talked ideas. Who invented this? It's heavenly, I thought. Sex segregation is a sacred gift to gays. The pesky boys go one way, the girls go the other way, and I go with the girls. True, you don't get to kiss anybody, but you get to romance. And here I blamed straight boys. They had set the bar so low for straight girls' expectations. It didn't take much to put a toe above the bar. I was a spiritual fox in the hen house. And I didn't mean to be. I wasn't conniving. But the more I believed, the more I desired. And the more I desired, the more I believed. Oh, divine serpent, biting its tail. I am not a lesbian, I said inside my head. I am a boy concealed in a girl gang. A boy who is learning to be a gay girl through being evangelical. This was my new thought. But am I better off learning to be gay, converting my boyhood to closeted gayness, or will my closeting make me a boy trying to be a girl who must kiss a boy? That will make me gay in a different way. Boy kissing boy. I'm skating on thin ice, very thin snow when it comes to kissing. That's how the chairlift matter comes about. I've been reading Romans in the New Testament. It has pierced my brain. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 to 27, quote, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, unquote. My dilemma racks me at this time, age 13. If at bottom I am more a boy than I am a girl, kissing on the chairlift is my gayest, most unnatural option. It feels gay, that is, unnatural. It feels homo, boy to boy, same to same, and thus wrong, given the wrong way U.S. culture is thinking of gay in 1972 as a sameness, thus a wrongness. Later, I realized that religious entities that oppose queers don't deem gayness unnatural at all. They must consider it hypernatural, since to their minds, everybody's going gay if we let them. This is not my thinking as I ride the chairlift. Much as I love God, I'm depressed to grasp that I must double-cross myself so as to please him. I must unnaturally act like a girl, as I unnaturally kiss this boy, all to obey the natural relations I read in a Bible I'm trying to memorize word for word. Got about halfway through. Even at this point, I'm having questions surrounding the gender confusion. I ask myself, if the church is the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom, but Jesus takes the spear on the cross for his bride, making himself the substitute bride for the sake of the church, how is Christ not feminized? This man with sacred holes, whose penis is fully excluded from mention, though ordinations of all male priesthoods down to hang on this organ. I have nowhere to go with these queries and mostly try to quash them when they come to mind. 
Thus, my rescue became less simple as time moved on. Predictably, I fell for my best friend, my girlfriend. Fluids from the stars could not have overwhelmed me more than our romance. I performed my reading of Christian theology and biblical commentary, longing to share it all with her. Quite a dynamic, letting words enter you, make a life in you, all to get in another woman's body via these words. One day, however, in passing, she said, you'd be my perfect husband if you were a man. That phrase pierced me, went way in me, for all my wanting my words to enter her. I lived inside that phrase that was now inside me. It was my vehicle, my fantasy, my coffin. Eventually, you can see I needed rescue from my evangelicals, and this required my Unitarian brother and divinity school, fittingly enough. My brother figures crucially because he convinces me to go to Yale, not to an evangelical seminary. You're an intellectual, he tells me in grand Unitarian style. You love words in a bounteous sense, not a narrow sense. And indeed, at Yale, I meet feminists and a group of people who imply they're gay, and that's good enough. Whereby the chairlift surrenders to my hair. There's this girl. Naturally, she's chasing after a gay guy and isn't getting him. I'm chasing her quietly, carefully. Then comes my chance. We memorialize the moment ever after as the haircut, since it was a haircut. Now, she was not a stylist, God is my witness, and my parents pointed out, but she obliged desire by approaching me with scissors. It was afternoon, but I've endowed the moment in my mind with sinking light, a curtain dropping inchingly on our proceedings and delicious slow fade. In the midst of cutting, for cutting's hot to me, she gets too near my crocodile face, and suddenly we kiss. There it is, the moment I've been waiting for, waiting for, ever for, happens as I blink little hairs from my eyes. How does it feel? It is like a liquid pillow, a depth of liquid feathers. The feeling is I'm falling softly into subtleness. I didn't know subtlety could shout or be so strong. The utter force of softness lips and the curious depths inside her mouth is shocking to me. Tumbling out a window into plumage is the feeling, a vast expanse of feathers free from any limit. Suddenly and stunningly, I am lonely. I've just entered a state of no return. This is 1982. Elton John isn't out. Ellen DeGeneres won't be out for another 15 years. I have entered gay, leapt from a balcony, ledge, window, into a word, an incoherent concept, which has entered me irreversibly. You can't go back in 1982. When you've kissed, you've crossed the line. And now I am rootless from this single act. Also ecstatic, ready to be damned if it comes to that. And the girl I'm kissing, where is she in all of this? 
She is gorgeous and cynically sweet, and never, to her knowledge, been attracted in this way. We are homo white, alike in our whiteness, not in our gendering or histories of attraction. She matters greatly, and all her unicorn uniqueness of a willingness to kiss me knowingly. Yet, my beautiful girl is a woman. She now stands for, I have kissed a woman. Who knows where I'm headed, as I head to Unitarians. Sensation, lover, and word flood my body in unequal measures. I am flooded or pierced by feathers. As I listen to that again, I'm just struck with the beauty of the words, the intricacies of the experience and the ways that it is both mysterious and unique, but also touches something universal. Um, I'm just, again, so, so grateful that Catherine could join us, and I hope it's not the last time. Well, as you know, as a part of this series, we are we have a question box and so we're inviting uh members of our community to submit questions so that we can uh, respond to them because we know that these topics bring up you know queries and sometimes we're afraid of asking questions because we feel like even in our questions we may be getting it wrong and i know for especially you use really like to feel like they know things and are getting them right and that can stop us from learning um and so we're trying to create a space where we can step into you know, ask questions that are on our hearts in the, the safe embrace of our community so that we can really grow in that ability to uh, be curious and conversant. So one of the questions that we got this week, I was reading it and I thought, you know what, I want to bring in another voice um, to help me answer this question. Someone who might, um, you know, have had experience, um, maybe a little bit connected to it. And so I, I reached out to uh, my friend Evan, Evan Carvel lemer I met Evan when I was a youth. They came in, uh, did I think a spirituality development conference or something, ah, or an app, something. It was a basic advisor training. Yes, it was a basic advisor training in Calgary. Um, and now we're colleagues. Evan is a, a minister and works for the Central East region of our UUA. Evan is trans, gender queer, and pronoun indifferent, which I love as a phrase. Uh, and so I thought, hey, Evan, why don't you jump on and we'll tackle this question together. So how are you doing, Evan? I'm doing good. It's good to be awesome. with you. To see yeah. you. All right. So I'm going to read the question. My fairly new to me son-in-law is trans and being trans is a core part of their identity. When I've asked my daughter about his story, her response is always that it's private and belongs to him. So I'm cautiously waiting to talk about it. Two years in, it hasn't happened. And I feel like I don't know a central part of his story. Do I ask? How do I ask? What do I ask? How do I extend the invitation without being invasive? You know, I love this question because the, the heart of it is wanting to be hospitable and respectful and also figuring out how to build a deeper relationship. And, you know, those two things feel like they're intention. And so um, I love this question. As you hear it, Evan, what's your, uh, what's your first reaction? My first reaction is, 
to reframe it about if your son-in-law was cis, what are the conversations about gender you'd expect to have had with him two years in? Would you have had a conversation about what it was like for him to be enculturated into toxic masculinity as a child or what the uh, male role models were like in his life as a kid? I mean, those are core conversations about being a cis male in our society. Are those conversations you'd expect to have had with him? And um, trans isn't really any different. Um, it's complicated and nuanced and, and ineffable, really, and can involve a fair amount of trauma, just unfortunately, as sometimes being enculturated into toxic masculinity can be for cis um, males too. So expecting to know the story, I think, is too narrow uh, and doesn't, doesn't leave space for the complex. Um, as a trans person, I have a story that I can tell if you sit me on a panel to do an education on being trans. Um, it is part of my story. I don't think it's even all of my story. It's too complicated and nuanced. And, and I don't have words for parts of my own story about my gender. Sometimes my gender doesn't make sense to me. Um, so how do I explain it to you? So I, I guess... A trauma piece I would want this person to keep in mind is probably there's a fair amount of trauma in this story, just likely. So if you knew that he was a survivor of childhood sexual abuse or something like that, you probably wouldn't be expecting him to share details with you about that. It would just be something you knew. So assume there's some trauma and some care you might not get to know. Okay, just pausing. Yeah. yeah. I think it's important to like know that like, or just know to differentiate, like there's not inherent trauma for being sure. No, yeah, but yeah, the trauma yeah. comes from living in the society right. that that is transphobic, yeah. that it's not the norm. You know, that's the experience that the trauma comes from. Because I think definitely on the right, we see this rhetoric that, you know, the trauma that trans people carry is inherent to being trans. And that's not what you're saying. You're saying, no. having grown up in this transphobic society, there's going to be this this harm and this, this yeah. kind of imprint. Exactly. Yeah. Who knows what that was for, for this this person? And it might be on the lesser end of the spectrum, or it could be on the really terrible end of the spectrum. Don't know what was done to him because he was trans or the experience of growing up in this world. So I just, I think we have to hold some tenderness around the expectation of story when it probably is some. And then the other thing I'd, I'd refer to, the ineffable, um, religious experience is a core part of identity. But if, I know somebody who's had um, a lot of transformative um, spiritual experiences. Um, I'm not necessarily going to get the details of those either. It's life-changing, ineffable experience of the divine. And that might be all I know about that story. It might be all they can tell me about that story. So consider there could be some trauma. Consider it could be entirely ineffable. Um, and and then I think consider you ask this and what's what can I extend the invitation without being invasive? I, I think the core piece of hospitality here, and I love I love Sean that you brought up hospitality. The core piece of hospitality here is to be appropriately self-revealing about your own life. Build trust by sharing stories about life, about the struggles of being in this world whatever that is that you share, that you want to share. And 
and build that kind of trust. Um, listen to the stories that your daughter and son-in-law tell you about their lives. Hold those tenderly. Um, ask gentle follow-up questions, the stories that they tell, and then reveal yourself. And that's how trust is built. And then just trust that the part of the story that you get from him about being trans is is the right story. Um, being trans is really different for lots of people. And, and don't don't assume that there is a story or that you are going to know that you received the story because his story might be really different than what you expect a story to be. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's so, so right on. Like, like, as I've been thinking about this question, there's almost this sense of, and I don't necessarily think the person is maybe intending this, like, oh, this person's withholding something and that's a barrier to our relationship. Mm -hmm. that sense that there's a barrier um and you know i think that removing that as a as a part of the relationship will probably help that relationship move forward and deepen into that sense of trust because if you don't think there is this thing that's preventing this sort of uh, deepening in that relationship because there's something that you need to know well that's gonna like make it so that you feel like you're not getting to know them and that you're kind of you're building something up in your mind that's probably going to prevent it. And so the more that you can kind of embrace who they are, who they're showing you to be, the stories they're showing you to be, asking those gentle follow-up questions, revealing things of yourself, doing your own work on gender, you know, being you know, as reflective about those, the way it plays out in your life is probably going to build that trust so that, yeah, whatever part of the story that they trust you with is is going to be there in time, you know, as, as it works out. Do you think that there's, um, any merit to, um, like one, one part of the convert, like the, the dynamic that was interesting was, you know, they did, I feel like they haven't talked to the son-in-law about this. It's like being relayed through their daughter. And that, you know, was definitely a, a way in which, you know, partners keep their partners safe and help families learn about how to engage with, uh, you know, with their partners. You know, is there anything that would be that you would want someone to say to you if they were feeling in this way about this struggle? Or is it something really for them to keep inside and kind of do the work without kind of putting it on the other person? This is a great question. Um... I feel like I've had people come to me with this kind of feeling and um, it definitely can be a feeling that can be put on you. Like, here's my discomfort and I'm going to give you my discomfort. Could you please make me comfortable by, by being vulnerable so that I feel comfortable? And it, No, please don't do that. Um, do your own work to feel um, like we feel uncomfortable all the time. Like that's part of being human. So we just have to befriend our own discomfort and hang out there. Um, and we're constantly aware. I think I'm thinking about your hospitality thread still. People are strangers. We're strangers to ourselves. I surprise myself every day. Like, who is that? Um, so comfort with the discomfort of being in the presence of a stranger. Your daughter is also as an emerging stranger in your daughter as she grows older. Being comfortable with that. I think is really important self-work. Um, if this person hasn't ever said to this son-in-law a little bit of invite, it might be good to say something, but something that holds that um, to themselves in, in, in a way, like um, 
I just want you to know that um, that I am grateful that you're in our lives and I'm um, want to do everything I can to support you as my trans son-in-law. And if there's anything that you want to talk to me about or tell me about you or, or ask me to do differently, I'm here to have that conversation. Just wanted to let you know. And and put it on that, like maybe there is something he needs to tell you. Um, one of the less invasive conversations to have actually is, how can I make you more comfortable? Or what do you need from me in the world? And I would start there. And I think when you're having that conversation, like everyone was going to respond differently. And so if, you know, you go up to them and say, you know, exactly what Evan just said, like, I want to know what I can do to support you. I wouldn't expect that they would maybe be ready in that moment to have that conversation with you. So you could even add like, and we don't need to talk about this now because I know yeah. I kind of brought this up, but I want you to know I'm open to hearing this at any time because you know i love you you're in my family um, and it's important to me that i show up um, and then i wonder like how do you do that same thing with your daughter right mm -hmm. that same how i'm supporting you as this adult you know as you're shifting that relationship shifting how your families are relating um i mean it's a pretty powerful thing for a parent to like turn to uh to their child their adult child and say hey i want to support you that's mm -hmm. important to me and, you know, we all carry assumptions about what that means. And we all have inherited patterns of how we relate to each other. And checking in on that is pretty, pretty big. Absolutely. And this is a hard part about parenting is letting your kids grow up and be adults and, and not knowing everything about their lives, being supportive. I mean, I think sexuality and romantic relationships is one of the hard things for parents to let go of as, as their kids become adults. And here's your chance to show your daughter that you're you're doing that and moving into this this relationship with her now. There's this quote that I love from Henry Nowen that that hospitality is the capacity for someone to cast off their strangerness in your presence. Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't think we ever completely do that. I don't think we ever come to the place where we completely know ourselves, completely know other people, and yet that kind of that moving from, he talks about the movement from hostility to hospitality, you know? And so how are you moving from even just the sense of, oh, there's something I don't know can create those barriers, but how are you creating a hospitality for, hey, maybe loving you means that there are things I don't know. There's things that I'm never going to know, but I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to create that space for us both to cast off this strangerness and become kind of fellow human beings together. Like that's that great orientation in life. Well, thanks, Evan. Appreciate it. We took up one more question from the previous week uh, in worship, and Gretchen and Catherine and I all responded. So I thought I would bring you um, that exchange to kind of round out our episode. We did get one question last week in our question box. So I thought I would share it with all of you and then uh, Gretchen and Catherine uh, and myself to just respond a little bit to it. So here's the question. I'm going to summarize it for you. This person writes, I have an adopted grandson who's six and a half years old, African-American, and who frequently wears skirts, paints his nails, and has his ears pierced. I'm a very conventional white male, and I leave the parenting to my daughter and son-in-law who are doing a great job. I support them, but I'm somewhat uncomfortable with my grandson's actions. I don't say anything about my discomfort. 
but what should I do? What do you think? First of all, I think uh, like Eleanor and Lauren were talking about earlier, I think it's good to acknowledge that we all kind of prefer to to know everything already. But um, part of what's happening is you're being asked to kind of hang in the I don't know space and that's uncomfortable. So um, I think that's that's a practice. And um, for the kiddo and the parents, it seems like they're fine. <laughs> they're doing good, according. I mean, at least according to what you said. So I think with them, um, I really do believe there's a good in the kind of fake it till you make it orientation and just keep supporting them and then kind of go back into that that space that is just your learning and kind of get curious you can put on your curiosity pants and courageous skirt and just kind of keep keep learning that's my impulse what do you think well i love that answer and it sounds like so much like a great minister we give that answer uh so so thoughtfully engage. I guess I would just add to that, and I think this is the theme for what is happening, you know, in your congregation, is we've been misled to think that there are these groups of people over here. They're gay people and trans people. What is today's gay people? What are they eating? How are they dressing? You know, how do they live? As if we're, you know, imagining a, a strange group that we're trying to get to know and trying to understand. And of course, getting yourself educated is a great thing, but we're all in this together. I don't think there's anybody in this room for whom sex, gender, and racialized gender hasn't been a strange and a estranging force. So allowing all of us to come into play, and if that person's seeing that cool six-year-old, to really take a cue from that and to start that journey and start that exploration. So it sounds to me like that's where you're leading this congregation in such an exciting way. Yeah, I think I would just add two things. I think the first is to acknowledge that that feeling of discomfort doesn't mean you're a bad person. Mm -hmm. Like, because you're having that sense of discomfort, that doesn't mean that, you know, you, there's something wrong with you. You know, this could be the first time you're encountering someone close in who's like living in a way that's outside your expectations of gender. And that being new can make you feel uncomfortable. That's normal. It's normal to be uncomfortable with things that are different. But because your values are saying you're supportive of this, the question is, how can you step through that discomfort to kind of meet your, meet your grandchild in a way that just affirms who they are? Yeah. And so like, don't add any extra shame and guilt on top of you for feeling this. It's okay. Because that's probably gonna stop you from stepping in and really meeting. Yeah. And the second thing is I love the description of this person as a conventional white male. I wonder if there's a place to play in what conventional means. You know, what does it mean for you to play with your own gender, maybe even in a way with your grandchild? Like, what if, what if both of you painted your nails together? What if both of you explored that side of yourselves, even in play? I think it might shift maybe some of your perceptions of kind of being on the outside of something. It might invite you deeper in. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Deeper Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being on this journey with us as we explore the worlds of gender and grow together in our capacities to be gender fluent. Um, it's really touching to be a part of a community that's doing this work, I have to say. So next week, Gretchen is going to be tackling the questions of masculinity and in a topic entitled Better Men. 
Thank you to everyone who supports our work, whether that's financially supporting the church and everything we do or being a part of the many ministries that make who we are possible. We are deeply grateful. Uh, Until next time, take care of yourselves.